Well, let's begin with prayer. Father, we come to you with this, our appeal for mercy. Um, we, um, as we grieve with uh, Daniel and Christiana and their whole family um, for the loss of his brother-in-law, we ask for um, daily, hourly, nightly mercy um, for, uh, for Daniel's sister and uh, the children. And we thank you for that in advance, knowing who you are. Lord, we remember those who's, uh, who passed in the outbreak of tornadoes this week uh, across this country, and we ask for mercy for the survivors, and we ask for that you would take each one who, uh, who has lost a family member, um, especially the children, and we ask that you would set them in families. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray also for um, members of the church persecuted, um, especially abroad. And we think of those uh, pastors and their families in India who have lost their lives for the sake of Christ and your gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would fulfill your promises to their family members who live and that you would protect those who remain. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we come now to our second message on Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, last week we did Romans chapter 12, the final verses in chapter 11, and the first verse of chapter 12. Now we narrow it down to Romans 12:1, which we know says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is your logical or reasonable or acceptable act of service. The book of Romans starts and ends with a bondservant. Paul starts off and he gives his, kind of his name or his identity. He's like, Paul, a bondservant or, or willing, committed, safe, free slave of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. And then elsewhere in chapter 1, he talks about the obedience of faith. See, faith is free. Law makes prisoners, but faith sets free. And so the household of faith has the obedience of faith. And then you know Romans also closes with, uh, with that same phrase, the obedience of faith in the final chapters. So therefore, the book of Romans is written by a bondservant to bondservants, and the question before us today is, why was Paul a bondservant of Christ? Today we answer that question, and we ask ourselves the same question, am I a bondservant of Christ? Am I true? I go to church. I'm a Christian, yeah. But am I a bond, sir? Am I a slave of Christ? Why or why not? The answer, uh, what is it about God that changes me from who I used to be into a person who willingly lays down my life to follow Christ? The answer to this question is found throughout Scripture. And today we will read some of these verses plainly for ourselves. But while knowing the logic is, may convince our minds, 
It is the eternal story of redemption with which we must engage. We are people of stories. Do you have children? Do your uh, children ask you to read stories to them? If they are at that age, of course they do, because they are human. We adults are human, and therefore we love stories, but uh, because we were created to participate in the greatest story of all time, the story of God's mercy on a rebellious people, sending his son into the world not to condemn them, but to become sin for them, so that we may become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 12 is the pivotal point where the gospel um, produces fruit for those who hear it with faith. In Romans, uh, right after Romans 12.1, we'll finish out chapter 12 and the following chapters with an examination of how then must we live. And we'll see that Romans 12 is fundamentally about how God's love for us elicits the response in us of our love for who? Him? Good guess. One another? Yeah, it mostly talks about how we love one another. So if we don't love one another, we don't love him. That's right. This great story is the story of mercy who became a man, the story for which our lives were written. Today, we'll look at a parable Jesus told, a real-life encounter with Jesus that changed a woman and her life story, and a fictional story that stands out in human literature. We will begin with that. How many of you have read or seen a film adaptation of Alexandre Dumas, I can't say his name with proper French pronunciation, of his novel, The Count of Monte Cristo? Who's heard of it? The Count of Monte Cristo. In 2002, there's a, there was a, one of many film adaptations of this book. It's, uh, it's a book about vengeance. And in the 2002 uh, film adaptation, there is uh, an encounter where the main character in the middle of this book that talks about how horrible vengeance is. There's an encounter that I couldn't find when I went back and read the book um, of, uh, of, I think, one of the most beautiful pictures of mercy I have ever seen in literature or film. The main character has just escaped from a castle prison where he's been imprisoned for 14 years on a false charge from his jealous friend and co-workers. 14 years he was locked up to waste away and he nearly miraculously escaped and in swimming back to the mainland he washes up on this beach and in the movie the scene opens with, uh, with the waves kind of washing up over his lower body and he's lying face down in the sand just barely on the land. And he opens his eyes and wakes up from unconsciousness and he looks at the wet sand in his hand and he looks up and he realizes he's on land and he turns around and looks several miles across the water behind him at the Chateau d'If, the castle where he was imprisoned all those years. 
and he stands with renewed strength. And he jumps up and he starts yelling and throwing up his arms and running like a, like a you know, kid running out to recess or something after a long day. But like being set free from imprisonment, which surely meant death, but slow death with no hope. And he runs jumping happily across the beach. And then the camera, and then he stops and he turns and he faces towards the camera. And in the foreground are a band of marauding smugglers or pirates. And, and his smile falls off his face. And in the, uh, in the rest of the scene, the captain of the smugglers says, I'm so glad you are here. Um, and he goes on to explain that here is one of my men that has fallen out of my good graces. And instead of burying him alive, which we came here to do, uh, I will have him fight you to the death. And uh, my men will see me as strong because I uh, you know, didn't just pardon him. Uh, but those who among my crew who wanted me to have mercy on him will be satisfied because I gave him a chance for mercy. And if you win in the fight to the death, then he didn't accept his chance for mercy. And, uh, and if he wins, well, you're dead and, I'm, uh, and I look good and I get my man back. Not exactly merciful. So, so the main character fights this man and in the scuffle, he bests the other man, lays him on his back in the sand, and with his knees on his chest, he takes his knife and he stabs it, he buries it into the sand next to the man, and, he's, and he turns toward the captain of the smuggling band, and he persuades him to let them both live and join the crew, getting not one man, but two. And the captain of the smugglers accepts and this extraordinary act of mercy, which if you think about it, if he had killed the man in front of pirates, would have been good for him because everybody would have feared him and nobody would have messed with him. That would have maybe been the most strategic choice. But with nothing to gain for himself at all, he had a chance to have mercy, and he had mercy for no reason except to have mercy because he took pity on the man. And it was not lost on that, uh, on that pirate who had lost this fight. And he reaches up and he grabs the main character's uh, coat and he pulls himself up close to him and he says, I am your man forever. It's one of the most poignant stories in all of literature of the mercy, of what the mercy of God would look like in if if put in human flesh. And I love it. It was so moving to me to see that. Now let's look at one in the book of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. A real-life encounter with a woman on whom Jesus had mercy, and it changed her life story. Join with me, Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet 
and anointed them with the ointment. Now, in the old days, if you went barefoot or wore sandals on public city streets, what did you walk in? You walked in things other than dust. For cars, they had donkeys or horses or whatnot, and they left behind exhaust in the form of waste, and you stepped in it. And so even if you were wearing sandals, your sandals didn't perfectly protect your feet from excrement. And so feet became dirty through the day in your journeys through the city. And it was the custom of a host to have the opportunity to be honored by uh, taking the chance to show hospitality to his or her guests. And so the, the honor of the host is proportionate to how good the hospitality is. Part of hospitality was to welcome the person, you know, like maybe you've seen they do in France, and to give them a kiss, right? And uh, that was a, a, per, a, a personal and an honoring greeting. It would be like a good, firm handshake and a, and a direct look in your eye when somebody meets you. They're really acknowledging you, and they're, they're acknowledging you kind of and, and as, as an equal by giving you that strong handshake, right, in our culture. And, and another tradition was to have one of the uh, members of the household or servants come with water, and while you reclined at table, because they didn't sit in chairs, they had a low table, so you'd, let's say, lean on your elbow or on a cushion or sit on a cushion, and your feet, you would never point your feet at somebody. Feet being dirty in the bottom of the body, uh, would be, it would be a great dishonor to lift up your heel, to lift up your foot against someone. That's like showing them the bottom of your body, and it's saying, you're like the scum between my toes, right? And so, so you would never do that to somebody. So the feet were pointed outwards, and there at the table, everybody faced one another, and they reclined at the table and, and ate, and looking at each other with their feet. And so uh, as they ate, or at that time, the servant would come around. If the host was a normal host, like a regular host who answered the door and kind of let you in, instead of yelling like, come in, you know, let yourself in, you know, a good host would, would have water brought to wash their feet. And, and as their feet were being washed, it was saying like, I'm going to serve you, or I'm taking your dirt away, and, uh, and kind of doing, I'm taking your dirt upon myself. And uh, it, it was a real, uh, well, just look at the story. See, see, the Pharisee invites him in, and here's this woman of the city who was a sinner. The Greek, the Greek uh, verb form for the word was there is like she used to be. So she had a lifestyle and a reputation that followed her. Verse 38 Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet. You might think to kiss dirty feet is gross, but in this culture, kissing dirty feet is like gross times gross. And anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he was tremendously embarrassed, and he said to himself, I should have showed this man hospitality. That didn't enter his mind. He deliberately refused him hospitality. It was a public, willful, willful gesture of dishonor 
when he refused him the hospitality that he should have given him. It was kind of like flipping him off in public. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, what was in his heart? He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I don't think he got the memo that Jesus had met her already and had had mercy on her and that she was given a new identity. But everybody else knew her by her old identity, as is often the case, uh, sometimes even in church. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, think like 500 days wages, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If, you're, if you like stories, this is a gripping little story, part parable, part real life. And you can only imagine what, the, what Jesus' meeting with the woman was like before she got there to that house that day. Can only imagine. So you can read a story without letting the story read you. The correct biblical interpretation for this story is to read yourself into it and to understand that you're the man in the story, or rather, ask yourself the question, which of the two debtors am I? Let's look now at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you think that same Pharisee was there? Do you think Jesus was talking to him? Maybe. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. 
Stop there. Who is at the bottom of the, social, the ancient social totem pole in this time period in Israel? Tax collectors and prostitutes. You've got shepherds, maybe a couple or a few steps above that, right? You've got people, regular people. You've got nobility and Pharisees and people of high standing. And then you have scuzz and the scum of the earth, right? So the great desire of the people of Israel, the cry of their hearts was for freedom from oppression that was like slavery. This extremely violent and harsh, brutal nation had conquered them decades and decades ago. And where was King Messiah? Where was freedom? You've got soldiers quartered in all the, all the cities and the towns. You've got right next to the temple, a barracks. This is horrible. They don't belong to themselves. They belong to Caesar. Caesar means, or Kaiser means, Lord, right? So like, there's supposed to be God in their midst in the temple, but they have Caesar's soldiers, Things were bad, and for years they had been praying, everybody was praying that God would, would, would drive out the Roman oppressors, everyone except for the tax collectors. The tax collectors and a few other shrewd politicians like the Sadducees had figured out, ooh, I can capitalize on this. And so they said, we're going to be employed by Rome to collect taxes for Rome from our own people. So money is what gets things done, yeah? So if they take the money from their own people and they give it to Rome, who got stripped of their power and their ability to do work? Because money is the ability to do work. And, and who gained the power? The tax collectors were deeply considered by their fellow Jews to be traitors, and they were. They weren't just, it wasn't honest work. How did a tax collector get rich? A tax collector got rich because the tax collector got to say, well, Roman law says we collect from this person this much tax, this person this, and they, and they wrote it out like a you know, shrewd car salesman, and then they gave you the bill, and if you didn't pay, well, there's a Roman soldier with a sword standing there. So yes, you're going to pay. But what did you pay? You paid what, what the bill said. What did the bill say? Whatever the tax collector wanted it to say. And so the tax collectors got rich on the backs of their own people, while their own people became poor, and this had been happening for a long time. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I'm telling you, we've read this parable, and if you know what the rest of it says, you know that the tax collector is the good guy, right? Nobody listening to this parable for the first time thought the tax collector was the good guy. Maybe they liked Pharisees or respected them, probably. Maybe they thought they were, you know, uh, a little uh, too eager to have a good reputation at the expense of God's reputation. Maybe they knew that the Pharisees had a reputation for... Uh, among those who kind of read between the lines as being people who cared more about the glory that comes from men than about the glory that comes from God. Yeah, sure. Maybe they knew that the Pharisees liked to stand on the street corners and pray long, 
prayers that they probably pre-wrote and polished and memorized so that they really sounded good when they prayed in public wearing their best suit with the really long tassels. But, so maybe the people hearing this parable for the first time didn't like tax collectors, or maybe they admired them and wanted to be like them and wished they could be, I mean, uh, Pharisees, and wished they could be as holy as a Pharisee, right? Pharisees sure thought of themselves as holy, but nobody hearing this parable wanted to be like the tax collector. The tax collector was the bad guy. Jesus says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, <clears throat> God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, tax collector, unjust, tax collector, adulterers, more scum, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, thank God. I give tithes of all that I get. <clears throat> In my name, amen. <laughs> but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Why? Because he was grieving. God was convicting him of his, of his sin. And he didn't feel worthy to look God in the eye, even looking from down to up. You see, the Holy Spirit was working repentance into his heart. The whole time, back, back when he was doing his unjust business, while he was on his way to the temple, probably weeping as he went, and there, while well, he stood far off, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We've just looked at three stories of mercy, but there is one more. We are the last chapter of this story. It says in Titus chapter 3, for we ourselves were once foolish. If you heard this morning's uh, uh, teaching in the book of Zephaniah uh, by Stephen, Stephen talked about a time when he had said something and he's like, ah, oh, dang it, I'm a fool. <laughs> and, and the more you realize that, the better, because the more hope you have. When you don't see it, you're, you're still blind and lost in our sins. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. One of my favorite hymns uh, launches like with gusto into its uh, exultant verses, and, and, uh, but with like a self-identification. And the singer of the hymn says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's a Christian hymn, because that's what we are all like in our flesh. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, 
slaves to various passions and pleasures. Can you feel that? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's like a soap opera. Why do people watch soap operas? Have you ever watched soap operas? Because they're goods, they're skillfully crafted stories. And because people watching it, uh, watching a soap opera, think to themselves, oh no, don't do it, because the action about to be taken, you can tell what's about, you can always tell what's about to happen in a, in a soap opera, and the character is about to do something, and it's so bad. It's like so vile or so foolish, and just, it's the wrong decision. Even we who are watching the soap opera say to ourselves, no, don't do it, and that's what keeps you watching, isn't it? I hope you don't watch soap operas. Um, but we get soap operas because there's something of soap operas in all of our lives. We get it and we recognize, no, don't do it because we've been in a place kind of like that or maybe because we did that and we learned the hard way. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. What does that mean? We talked about that last week. We said that we get to watch the mercy of God go from invisible to visible in the person of Jesus Christ. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He, the embodiment of the goodness and loving kindness of God, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Who are we kidding, church? <laughs> but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see more about that in Romans 12, 2 when we get there. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Talking about those people, right? Those people among whom we all once lived, let's be real, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The last chapter of this story is us. Luke 7:47. put yourself in it. Put yourself in the place of, of that woman, right? That woman of the city who was a sinner. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says publicly, as he declares over you his acceptance of you and his justification, and he declares over you your new identity. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. Why did she love Jesus so much? How is it that the mercy that God changes us from what we were to what we are and what we're becoming, even the image and the likeness of Christ. He does it. She loved him because he loved her when he wasn't even on her radar. 
1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or offering sacrifice substitute for our sins. We love because he first loved us. So therefore, Paul writes this appeal to us, Romans 12.1, I urge you therefore by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Paul says, I'm Paul, a bondservant. How did he become a bondservant? How did he get the obedience of faith? How did this woman get faith in the first place and, and love for Jesus in the first place? She got it because he met her and had mercy on her. He got it because God met him on the road and struck him with blindness, then took the scales from his eyes. God had mercy on a murderer. And as it says, such were some of us. And Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It is the mercy of God that transforms our hearts. And what does the mercy of God do once our hearts are transformed? We love God and we go away and we become very pious. And we don't really need to go to church, but, you know, we respect churchgoers. And, you know, I can have this relationship with God all by myself. And eventually we get to where we're kind of standing far off and we're thanking God that he has turned my heart towards him or washed me from my sins. And we get more and more pharisaical, more and more... Uh, pietistic, all that about pietism, which is unbiblical, which is much. But no, the prayer of the Christian is prone to wander. Lord, I feel that. Prone to leave the God I love every day. As we have said, I need to renew my mind in the gospel, in the word of God every day or the gravity of my depravity will bring me down. So what then does the transforming mercy of Christ do in me? We will see as we go through Romans, uh, the rest of Romans 12. I can't wait to get to verses 14 through 21. You will like it. Um, it causes us, Ephesians 5, 2, to walk in love. Because love for God means love for one another that, that, that is worked out in relationship, in conflict resolution, in not taking vengeance, in not envying, in, in the end of strife, in Christ becoming peace not only for me, but peace for me, God's peace expressed through me to those in my circle and beyond. Ephesians 5.2 and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this also is your reasonable, logical act of worship. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. The love of Christ controls us. Does that sound like I've become a bond servant? I've bound myself to be his man for life? The love of Christ controls us. God isn't controlling. The love of Christ controls us. Oh, God is so good, church. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And, if, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. One more thing. For me, it's not enough to know that he had mercy on me. I want to know why he had mercy on me. Last week we said that uh, God created you uh, to have mercy on you for his own glory. Let's add something to that. In Exodus chapter 25, when God is explaining that he is going to live in the midst of the people of Israel, and he's giving them instructions for how to build his tent or tabernacle in which he will dwell, one single thing stands out above all the rest of the details of this tent, this dwelling place of God in their midst. Because it is at the very center of that tent or, or the, the, in the most holy place. Above the Ark of the Covenant, there were these cherubim. And what did God call it? He called it a seat. A, a what? The mercy seat. He called it the mercy seat. Why is it called that? Because mercy is in his nature. God loves me and delights in me, but the greater or, or overarching metaphysical reality above that is that mercy is in his nature. Because mercy is in his nature, it's in his name. We saw it in Romans 9 verse 15, which is quoting from Exodus. Exodus 33:19. God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will have I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Mercy is in his name. You can't know the Lord. You can't hear his name without knowing that within his holy character is at his heart. There in the middle of that place where we meet with God is Christ, the sacrificial lamb, with his blood sprinkled upon what? the mercy seat, that we may enter, or rather, that he may come and dwell with us. Mercy is in his name. Mercy for whom? Mercy for us. Please come forward to the table.